Okay, so this is the first part of a mini-series over the next um, two weeks. This week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But it's set within the bigger picture. So it's set within um, the story of God that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And so the story of God that starts in Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation 22. And the story starts... In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. And we read God's account of his creation and how he saw that it was good. And then he created man and woman, and it was very good. A man and woman, Adam and Eve, were created in the image of God for relationship with God and with each other. And they were given authority over the earth. And in Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living, living creature that moves on the ground. And Adam and his wife were na- both naked and they felt no shame. That's Genesis 2.25. And everything was good. Adam and Eve walked in perfect relationship with each other and with God. And then something went wrong. They had the whole garden to enjoy, but instead they go to the one place that God told them not to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they search for something when they'd already been given everything by God. And having listened to what the serpent had to say, and the lies he told them, they took the fruit, and sin entered the world. For the first time, Adam and Eve became aware of their nakedness. But almost immediately, before we even get to the end of Genesis 3, just after the account of the fall, God shows his loving kindness to them and makes garments of skin for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness so they didn't need to hide. And he also promises there will be redemption. In Genesis 3.15, he says... And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is God talking to Satan and telling him what ultimately will happen. And also, it's the first time, first mention of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus. God had a plan. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son that Steve mentioned last week, waiting, looking out for his, the return of his son, that's what God's like with us. I heard someone say once that um, the Bible is a story of God who lost his kids in the garden and wants them back. He wants relationship with us. He wants to exper- us to experience the same connection that Adam and Eve had in the garden, knowing who we are, created in his image, created to be loved and to walk with God unashamed. God throughout history has made ways for his people to be in relationship with him and finally sending Jesus to redeem us, to redeem what had been lost in the garden and to buy back what, was origi- what had re- originally belonged to God. And so today we're going to look at the days leading up to Jesus' death. And in particular, the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. For me, growing up, um, dinner was a tray on your lap in front of the TV. 
we didn't sit around a table. I don't think we even had a table, um, except the odd Christmas, Christmas day, and then it would depend. We kind of had this pool table that we'd put planks of wood on the top and turn it into a table. Um, but even then, it would depend how many people my dad brought back from the pub. So there was always the, the chance that you could be sat under the table. Um, and it was something that I kind of learned to value when I grew up, I kind of becoming a Christian when I was 16, I'd go, then go out and have lunch with friends and we'd be sat around the table. And it wasn't about grabbing something to kind of just fill your stomach. It was about enjoying each other's company. It was about being together, that relationship, friendship. And that's what meals were like in the time of Jesus. They were important. They were significant social events. If you look through the Gospels... There's many, many stories of Jesus eating with people. Um, someone said that kind of Jesus ate his way through the Gospels, and that's true. If you look, you know, he's either feeding people, inviting himself around for dinner, um, or, or eating with his disciples. There's a, an author, um, Brennan Manning, um, who's wrote some, some great books. Um, in his book, The Furious Longing of God, he says... When an Orthodox Jew, which Jesus was, says, I want to have supper with you, he is saying, I want to enter into friendship with you. Being welcomed at the table for the purpose of eating food with another person was symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. It was something special. And so our text today is John's account of the Last Supper. But before we read it, let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today and the account of the Last Supper, let it be more than a story of, of you spending time with your disciples. Holy Spirit, give us fresh revelation of what it means, of what's important to us, and how you would have us apply it to our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. And so if you've got a Bible, um, app on your phone, or want to look at the screen, we're going to read um, from John 13, verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things in, under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus said, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, 
Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and what was, and what, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing the feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so the meal being celebrated here is the Passover. It wasn't the first time the disciples had celebrated the Passover with Jesus. He'd been with them three years at this time, so at least three times they'd celebrated the meal. The Passover has its origins in the Old Testament, which we'll look at later. But for now, let's look at how people would have celebrated the occasion in the New Testament. It was a celebratory meal, eaten at night, probably around 6 p.m. It was meant to be an intimate feast. One or two families would normally share the meal together. A minimum of 10 people were required. So Jesus and his disciples would have celebrated the Passover as a family unit. The meal had to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. And so it was not unusual for homes to include guests or even offer their spare rooms for others to celebrate, which is how Jesus and his disciples come to be celebrating in a borrowed room. The account of the Passover in John's Gospel, the one we've just read, is not as detailed in telling the story than the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke all describe how they found a room to eat together. Peter and John were sent into the city to find a man carrying a water jar and told to follow him to his house and ask where the guest room was. And they were shown a room upstairs where they could celebrate together. And so why doesn't John tell us um, these details? So John writes later, he's writing 20 or 30 years after Matthew, Mark and Luke had written their Gospels. And he simply assumes that by the time he's writing, everybody would know all the details. They would have heard the story from someone else or they would have even had access to one of the Gospels that had already been written. But in reading all the accounts across all four Gospels, we get the best picture of what happened And we're told Jesus took the bread, um, as any host would, and gave thanks. But Jesus had a different prayer to the traditional Jewish prayer. And so in Luke's um, gospel, chapter 22, in his account of the Passover, he says um, about Jesus, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, this which is poured out for you. For us as Christians, the bread and the wine carry huge significance. We understand what it means 
And in doing it, in taking it, we're remembering Jesus' death on the cross and the amazing love he had for us. But that night, and those, when those disciples were gathered around the table with him, the cross hadn't happened. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about when about his body being broken or his blood being poured out. They wouldn't have had the details that we have today. But what they did have was the history of the Jewish nation, a story of how God came through and saved the people by the blood of a lamb. Although John doesn't say it, we're supposed to connect the dots, to relate what Jesus has done with the bread and the wine and it is about to do on the cross with that, that, the story of how God saved a people through the death of the Lamb, that very first Passover. And so if we look back, the first Passover is in Exodus 11 and 12. If you're reading through Yobble, the year of biblical literacy, and we're reading through kind of the Bible in a year or however long it's taken us, we've possibly by now, probably by now, read a story um, of how Moses goes to Pharaoh and asks for freedom for the people of Israel. As Pharaoh wouldn't let the Jewish people go, God sent plagues on the land. We hear about the frogs and the insects and the hail and locusts, etc. And every time a new plague began, Pharaoh would cry, I will let the people go, only to change his mind. And then plague number 10 comes, and the final plague changed things. God said that he would kill all the firstborn sons in Egypt, including Pharaoh's. In order that the Jewish people escaped this plague, they were to kill a lamb and put its blood around the door frames. And in doing this, the Lord would pass over their house and their firstborn sons would survive. The blood of a lamb was what saved them and led to their freedom. Ring any bells? Jesus had had eaten the Passover with his disciples and used it to relate what he was going to do with what had already happened in the history of the Jewish nation. God, by his amazing love, made a way for the Israelites to be freed through the blood of a lamb. And And through his love, Jesus said, The Father sent his son, Jesus, to die for us, for our salvation and our freedom. And so we go back to John 13 with Jesus and the disciples at the last last Passover meal they would celebrate together. And I said, it's easy to understand the events after they happen. We look at the story through the lens of Jesus' death on the cross. But at that time, for those present at that Passover meal, it wasn't the case. And if Jesus saying he was the Passover lamb wasn't confusing enough, the disciples, with the story John tells of the events, I can imagine them struggling to get what was going on. You've got the bread being his body and the wine being his blood. And then he's up and he's washing their feet. It's kind of a bit weird. I'd always pictured it like this. Jesus and the disciples sat on chairs around the table, Jesus at the head of the table, and he uses it like he would often do, um, to do a little bit of teaching. And so he's like saying, we've discussed the meaning of the bread and the wine and how I'm going to be the Passover lamb. Let me tell you now how to serve. 
This is an example of how, in humility, you can love one another with what you do. But having read how Jesus and the disciples ate this meal, I'm not so sure. This meal was very intimate. Personal space seemed not to be an issue for the disciples. The likelihood is they weren't sat on chairs around a table, but reclining on couches, which had become customary for feasts. And so imagine you've got 13 guys around a low table, probably 18 inches high, lounging on cushions. Each person would recline slightly behind the person to their right, with their upper body towards the table and their feet behind them. They would lean on their left elbow, leaving their right arm free to eat with. And the food would be arranged on the table in front of them. And so they'd lean across each other to to reach for food. At the meal, the places next to the host were given to the honoured guests. It's thought that one of these was the beloved disciple, the one we know as John. It says in John 13 that the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. And so if you've got John one side, who was on the other side of Jesus? There's commentaries that think this may have been Judas. Verse 26 of John 13 tells that Judas was quite near to Jesus. He was close enough for Jesus to hand a piece of bread to. So I said earlier that even though the disciples had eaten with Jesus many times, this meal had been more than they'd experienced before. First the talk of bread and wine, and now Jesus is up from the table. He's taken off his outer robe and he's preparing to wash their feet. He'd definitely not done that before. Foot washing at this time was a basic act of hospitality. The roads were dusty and people often walked barefoot or in sandals. So on arriving at a person's house, the household servants would wash their feet. But we're at the point in the meal that they'd already eaten dinner. And so had they washed their feet as they came into the house? Or had they forgotten? Either way, Jesus is showing them an act of humility and servanthood. But he's also showing an act of unconditional love. We know Peter had something to say about what was happening, but he wasn't the first disciple to get wet. Jesus had washed other disciples' feet before getting to him. Ever wonder who was first? Well, just suppose it was Judas. He could have been the one sat next to Jesus. It would be an obvious place for Jesus to start. But we know from the passage that the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And even knowing this, Jesus still serves him and still washes Judas' feet. It makes the whole setting, the meal, the washing of the feet, all the more impacting. Wherever the disciples were, emotionally, spiritually, whatever dirt they had on their feet or whatever dirt they carried in their hearts, they were in relationship with Jesus. They were around the table enjoying fellowship with him. Jesus considered them friends. There was a place at the table for each of them, even Judas. Jesus didn't reject Judas, even though Judas was about to reject him. And so this morning, we're going to take, or this afternoon, we're going to take communion. But before we do, 
let's consider the things in our lives and in our hearts that we carry. So going back to the story I shared earlier about my experience around the table growing up, I can still battle with some of the insecurities and the, and the fear um, that that brings about not having a place at the table. And even whilst preparing this, I've battled through kind of feeling rejected or feeling lonely. And for me, it's these things that I need to let Jesus wash me clean of. And I need to be brave, I need to be courageous and take up his invitation to the table and take my place. And so, as, as we come to take communion this morning, there's a, a table at the back, so we're not going to do it um, dotted around the room, but there's a table at the back, and on the table there's, there's alcoholic wine, there's non-alcoholic wine, there's bread and a gluten-free option, um, and it's there for you to go to, take, break off a bit of the bread and, and dip it in the cup. But as you do, think about these things. Are there things in your life that prevent you from coming to Jesus and receiving his forgiveness and friendship? Maybe you've been walking along, walking through life, and you've picked up stuff along the way, and your walk with Jesus isn't quite how it was or how you want it to be. Or are you so ashamed of the state of your life that you couldn't imagine letting Jesus close? And maybe this morning, for the first time, you've realized Jesus loves you and he, did, he doesn't reject you. There's a place for you at the table. And so whatever the state of your heart, the invitation is to come. And so I'm, just, I'm going to pray and then, as you want, as and when you're ready, um, I encourage you to to go to the back, take your place at the table. He's inviting you to come.